Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I want to just begin by talking about Yosef HaTzadik. He's, he's one of the most amazing figures in the, in the whole Torah. And to talk about his unique ability to be this master of faith. You could say that there are two categories of faith. Probably, if we wanted to go deeper, we could come up with a, a hundred categories. But let's talk about two main categories right now. The first category is when you have nothing. And you have faith that God's going to give you something. The second category is when you have absolutely everything and you have faith that God is the one who's doing it and not you. So I think Yosef really is the master of this second category because Yosef is described as one of the most beautiful human beings that ever lived. He was also actively running all of Egypt, this great ancient empire. So he was beautiful, he was powerful, and somehow amidst all of that, he remained holy and never lost sight of the fact that everything came from Hashem. And you know something? I think if people had a choice, well, which category would I like to be in? Someone who has nothing, and I'm praying that God gives me something, I have faith God will give me something, or I have everything, but I still have faith that it's not me who's doing it, it's God who's doing it. I think everyone would say, category two, I'm a category two guy. And yet, what I would suggest is it's possible that remaining a master of faith when you're in the second category is actually more difficult to do. Maybe, maybe. When everything points to the fact that you're so rich and you're so smart and you're so talented and you're so beautiful, it's really hard not to think that it's not you who's accomplishing everything. And Yosef somehow, in his holiness, was able to stay attached to Hashem. And I just want to appreciate Yosef on a bunch of different levels. And one thing that I want to say, and by the way, I want to enlarge this conversation because we're still living in Greece. Why am I telling you this? Because whenever we learn about Yosef in the Torah, it's always during Hanukkah. Those two things always go together. And so Yosef and Greek culture are really put before us to sort of like conceptualize how do the two fit together? How do the two contrast every single year? So part of the study of Yosef, and I told you Yosef was one of the most beautiful human beings that ever lived. How much so, the rabbis say, that Egyptian women would climb the walls of their estates when they knew Yosef was going to be coming by in a chariot 
And the Egyptian women who were workers, you know, they couldn't stop working. So they'd be peeling their fruit. When he came by, they'd start peeling their skin. They didn't even know that they weren't peeling the fruit at that moment because they were so transfixed by his beauty that they just lost sight of what they were doing. Can you imagine? So, so Greek culture is also beautiful. So I want to just take a few moments to talk about the beauty of Greece versus the beauty of Yosef. And of course, Yosef in this in this way of understanding it stands for Torah and stands for Judaism. So, so what is the beauty of Greece? And it's a real beauty. And in fact, the Greek line comes from Yafes, who is one of the sons of Noah. And actually, he's blessed with beauty. So this idea that Greek is beautiful that in itself is a Torah concept. I'll, I'll tell you something, just, uh, you know, just kind of like a far out piece of information. It says in Gomorrah Megillah, you know, which is the whole study of the holiday of Purim and how to observe it and, you know, all the secrets of Purim and things like that. It says that if you have a Megillah, right? The Megillah is the whole story of Purim written out. If you have a Megillah written in Greek, it's kosher. <laughs> that interesting? But we're talking about ancient Greek right now, which we don't really have today. But, but that's even the rabbis, like a couple of thousand years ago, were holding by even the alphabet of Greek is beautiful. Okay. But that beauty has its shortcomings because the Greek concept of beauty is primarily a superficial beauty. It's mostly a physical beauty. And when it goes toward the intellectual and the philosophical and the religious, it's based on many gods, not one god. So, so the it never reaches the depths of Torah. That's the point. It never reaches the beauty of the oneness of God. Now, I want to show you an illustration of how Yosef and Greek beauty, the beauty of Yosef and the beauty of Greece come together in an amazing way. Now, I've shared with you many times that Hebrew is what we call Lashon HaKodesh, the holy tongue. That means that when you analyze Hebrew words, that there's a depth to the configuration of the letters and even the shapes of the letters, which is, which is divine. And in fact, our mystical tradition is that God made the world out of the Hebrew letters. Think of them as energy wavelengths. God combined these energy wavelengths together and made the world. And Reb Shlomo said something so beautiful. He said that when the wind rustles through the trees, the sound it makes is in Hebrew. I'll say that again because I love it so much. When the wind rustles through the trees, 
the sound it makes is in Hebrew because Hebrew is the language of nature. God created the world out of the Hebrew letters. Okay, so with that in mind, let's look at the Hebrew word for Greece. It's Yavan. And I'll just kind of draw the letters in the air for you. Yavan, the, it's like a pictogram. The, the actual spelling of it makes a picture, and it's a beautiful picture. Which makes sense, because Greek culture is beautiful. You know, Greece, one of the things it was known for was its architecture, and its harmony, and its pillars. So with the Greek pillars and architecture in mind, let's look at the spelling of the word Yavan, which is Greece in Hebrew. So it's the letters Yud, Vav, Final, Nun. All right, so let's kind of like draw them in the air. Yud is a short line. Then what comes next is a Vav, which is a longer line. And then it's a final Nun, which is an even longer line. Three lines, short, medium, and long, all arranged next to each other. A beautiful design, beautiful harmony, right? Physically beautiful. But that's the outside beauty. That's the outside beauty. You know, we're still living in Greece. Today's culture is very, very close to Greece in terms of its emphasis of the outside and the superficial. You know, one of the things I heard Reb Shlomo say one time is that in this day and age, it's a criminal offense to be superficial. Can you imagine? So, so there's so many successful people. I live here in Los Angeles and one of the just truths of this city that I can tell you is that a very high percentage of these quote-unquote successful people are miserable. <laughs> and the question is why? Why are so many people miserable when we have so much today? And the answer is, is because they've, they've attained the outside of success, but they don't know the inside of success. They have the outside, but not the inside. What's the inside? The inside is your soul. A lot of people in their scramble towards success, they grasp the outside, but somehow they lost the inside. And so now let's revisit Yosef. Yosef is Yosef at Tzadik. He's not just beautiful on the outside, he's beautiful on the inside. And you know the word tzaddik? The only person in the entire Chumash, in the five books, who's called the tzaddik is Yosef. Avraham is not called the tzaddik. By the way, today is Avraham Avinu's Yerzai. And we lit a candle for him in my house. And you know, when someone when leaves this world, you go by their father's name. So we had kind of like a a little discussion. We wanted to say Avraham Ben, but we couldn't say Avraham Ben Terach because when you become a convert, you start your new line all over again. So a convert would be 
Avraham would be whatever your name is, Ben Avraham, child of Avraham. But what do we say about Avraham? So we had, one of my kids said, we should say Avraham ben Hashem. But the answer that I liked better was Avraham ben Avraham. <laughs> I thought that was even deeper. <laughs> so, anyway. Avraham's not called Avraham HaTzadik. Right? Moshe's not called Moshe HaTzadik. Only Yosef is called Yosef HaTzadik. Now, tzaddik is also a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Sometimes people say tzaddi, or you can say tzaddik, okay? Now watch this. Everything I've been telling you is going to come together right now. Take that word yavan, but you know something? We need one more step first. Let me tell you something else that's unbelievable about Yosef. And I heard this from Reb Shlomo too. Do you know that there was a time in Jewish history that there was only one Jew in exile? Isn't that amazing to think of? Can you imagine today if every single Jew in the world lived in Israel? Please God, right? Except for one? <laughs> like that would be pretty wild, right? Every single Jew lived in Israel except for one. There was a period in Jewish history where that happened. And you know who that one person who lived outside of Israel was? Yosef. Because his brothers sold him into slavery. Everybody still lived in Israel, except for Yosef. Now you want to hear something incredible? Reb Shlomo goes on to say that till this day, do you know where you get the strength to be a Jew in exile? From Yosef Etzadik. Because Yosef had the ability to remain Jewish, to remain attached to Hashem, to remain holy under those circumstances. That's where we, till this day, get our strength to be Jewish in exile. Now let me tell you something else. The gematria of the name Yosef, the numerical equivalent of Yosef, you ready for this? Remember, He's the only Jew in exile. You know what Yosef is in Gematria? Tzion. Do you know what Tzion means? Tzion means Yerushalayim. Tzion means Israel. Zion. We say Zion in English. Can you imagine that as much as Yosef was outside the land of Israel, the only one outside of Israel, how the fiber of his being was still connected to Israel, that the gematria of Yosef is Tzion? Beautiful. Okay, now we can finish the thought. So, Yosef HaTzadik. Tzadik is a letter. Now let's go back to that pictogram, that beautiful pictogram. Greece, remember, is three lines. Yud, Vav, Nun. A short line next to a longer line, next to a longer line. Beautiful symmetry, like Greek columns. Beautiful. But that's just the outside beauty. Now, if you put the letter Tzadik in front of Yavan, do you know what it spells? Tzion. 
That's Yosef. And that's the combination of true ultimate beauty. That's the inside beauty and the outside beauty when it becomes fused together. That's the ability, so to speak, to have everything, but at the same time to know that you can't lift a finger without Hashem. So that's, that's Yosef. That's Yosef. So now, if you ask me, who is Mashiach descended from? The ultimate Mashiach. Who is the ultimate Mashiach descended from? Based on what I just said, I would have to say Yosef. It's got to be Yosef. <laughs> but do you want to hear something even deeper, even more amazing? You know who Mashiach is descended from? David HaMelech. Do you know why? Because everything that I just described to you, as beautiful as that is, and that's awesomely beautiful, there's something even more beautiful than everything I just described to you. You know what that is? Tshuva. David, who descends from Yehuda, are the masters of tshuva, the masters of returning to God. The masters of saying, I'm living my life in this way and I'm doing really well. But you know something? There's an even better way to live my life. I can live it that way. <laughs> I can live a life where I'm giving like the inside of the inside of the inside to God who's keeping me alive, who loves me the most, who loves us the most. That's the ultimate beauty. And I heard from Rabbi Meir Fund an articulation of this. He said, you know, if you have a vase, like imagine a ceramic vase, and it breaks, and you put it back together again, it's never as beautiful as it was before it broke. He said, but in the eyes of heaven, if you have something that breaks, and you put it back together again, it's even more beautiful than it was to begin with. And, you know, I, I've shared that thought and the, the name of the um, Asian art form escapes me at this moment. But they actually incorporate that beauty into, into their art where they'll break something and then what they'll do is instead of the glue, like... If I were to try to fix the pot, I would try to make it look like it was never broken to begin with. The more I could make you not see that little crack, the better job I did. But you know, this Asian art form, they do something different. They emphasize the crack and they, they paint it or infuse it with gold to show the beauty of putting something back together again. That that's, that's the real gold. That's the real gold. So, so that's, that's our ultimate beauty. I read that there's a, again, within this, within Chinese culture, there's something called gang fu. And 
what what that is is it's it's a imperfection that's intentionally incorporated into a piece of art that if a piece of art looks too perfect that it doesn't have like what we would say like in 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 in, in Hebrew a tam it doesn't have a taste but if there's something a divinely pointed imperfection that's been incorporated within it, then that's that's real beauty. That's what they call gung fu. Interesting, no? So you see that within the Jewish spiritual model. That to make a mistake and then to repair it, somehow it's like even more amazing. And by the way, this idea is in the Gomorrah itself. It says where a Baal Tshuva stands, and what's a Baal Tshuva? A, a master of return. It's someone who's lived their life a certain way and then realizes, you know, there's something even higher and deeper. That's what I want. It says where a Baal Tshuva stands, a perfect Tzadik who's never done anything wrong can't stand, meaning that the Baal Tshuva is above the perfect Tzadik. And I once heard it explained this way. Whereas the, the tzaddik has just bags and bags of, say, diamonds. Diamonds and diamonds and diamonds, right? From all the mitzvahs. But you see, in Torah, we have this amazing concept, which is that if you return to God out of love, that's the key word. It's got to be with love. If you return to God out of love, all of your past mistakes turn into mitzvahs. If you return to God out of fear, which is also good, all of your past mistakes, your intentional wrongdoings, no, 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 I meant to do that. Your intentional wrongdoings turn into mistakes. Okay, that's still pretty good. <laughs> But if you return to God out of love, those past problems turn into mitzvot, which means they become rubies. So that's why the Baal Tshuva is higher than the Tzaddik. The perfect Tzaddik just has diamonds, but the Baal Tshuva has diamonds and rubies. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good, right? And why is that the case, by the way? There's a logic to it. It's not just hocus pocus. And the logic is actually considering the level of what, what we're actually saying, that you can actually change your past. You can transform and elevate your past, which sounds impossible, actually. Um, but you have to, you know, work. Like if you hurt someone, you have to apologize. If you stole something, you have to repay the person. But if you do that, it turns into mitzvot, right? Now, those are the person-to-person -person things you have to take care of. But what about all the times I broke Shabbos? What about all the times I ate unkosher? I can't repay anyone. How do I fix those things? So the answer is that's where the love comes in. The love is that magical transforming energy that turns all those person-to-God things from mistakes into merits, right?
that, that, that's, that's where the love transforms reality and your past. Okay, so now what's the logic to it? Because it is, it is logical. L listen to this. I think all of us would agree that we are the sum total of everything we've done up until this moment. Right? We, each of us, each of us, whatever I've said, done, thought, whatever, lived, whatever I've done up until this moment, that's the sum total of who I am. Well, let's say the person you are today is someone who just loves God. <laughs> just, God, what can I do for you? Thank you for giving me life. Thank you for letting me participate in this epic project that you call this world. Thank you for being, making, weaving me into reality. Thank you, God. Thank you. If a person reaches this state, and maybe they did some not so great stuff up until this moment, but this is who you are right now. Well, guess what? All of those things that you did leading up to this moment helped make you the person that you are today. And if the person you are today is someone who's cleaving to Hashem, then as crazy as it is, that wrong turn puts you on the right path. And that's why those wrong turns, if you return to God out of love, why all those wrong turns turn into mitzvot, turn into rubies. Because ultimately, even though it was in a roundabout way, they made you the person you are today. Who knows what you know today? You know, there's a classic, classic Hasidic story. The Berdichever Rebbe was talking to someone who was like, like really, like, as we would say, not holding. Meaning to say he was, spiritually speaking, on a really low level. And the Berdichever Rebbe was one of the greatest tzaddikim of all time. And, and the Berdichever Rebbe said this with utter sincerity. He looked at this person and he said to him, I'm so jealous of you. And he said, you're jealous of me? Like, why? And he said, because if you do tshuva, do you know how many mitzvahs are waiting for you? You're going to get all those mitzvahs. I, like this, this, this jackpot of mitzvahs are like right in front of you waiting to come into your soul. And um, it's such a beautiful way to look at everyone. You know, you never want to be superior or think you're superior to anybody. I heard one Rebbe say, I don't remember who, but I thought it was beautiful. He said, he looks at every single person he meets as better than he is. And this is how he does it. Even though this was like a big rabbi, right? This is how he does it. He says, when he meets someone who's younger than he is, he says, that person has less averas, less sins than I have. So he's better. When he meets someone who's older than he is, he goes, ah, that person has more life experience. That person knows more than I do. He's lived longer. He, he knows life on a deeper level than I do. So that way, whoever he meets, he feels as though he's meeting his better. 
but an awesome tool to remain humble, right? Okay. So now I want to go deeper and talk about you and me today. How do we fit into all of this? You know, I mentioned these two categories of faith. And the second category, which is really emblematic of Yosef HaTzadik, this second category is about believing, even though you have certain abilities, still believing that whatever you do, that really Hashem is the one who's doing it. Now, by the way, just as a side point, you can't completely cut yourself out of the picture. I want to make a special point of saying this because a lot of books that you'll read when it talks about subjects like what I'm talking about right now, leave the part out that I'm about to say because they assume that you know it. But in today's day and age where there's such a crisis, a a legitimate crisis of self-esteem, that people have. We can never take for granted that people assume that they're supposed to have self-esteem. So you have to know that you're beautiful. You have to know that you have a piece of God inside of you, which is awesome. You have to know that God absolutely believes in you more than you believe in him. God believes in you. How much does God believe in you? He has a piece of you inside of him. No, he has a piece of him inside of you right now. Amidst all of your mistakes. God didn't make a withdrawal. God doubles down every single day. No, I believe in you. So, you know, that's that's important. So when I say that a person has to know that everything comes from God. That that doesn't mean that you aren't also beautiful and that you aren't also really trying and working. You are. You are. So the higher levels are to appreciate your own greatness while at the same time knowing that everything comes from God. If you can balance those two things, then you're on a Torah path. You know, there are a lot of people who say that they're humble or who think that they're humble, and they're not. They just have low self-esteem. <laughs> it's, it's sad. It's sad. Because to be humble is much harder than to just think you're worthless. <laughs> To be humble is to know your greatness and within the context of understanding your greatness, understanding that still God is doing everything. That's Torah humility. Do you think Moshe Rabbeinu, who's called the humblest person who ever lived, do you think he didn't figure out that he's the only one standing on top of the mountain? (laughs) You got approximately two and a half million people below you, and you're the only one on top of the mountain, you think, you think he didn't realize 
that he was running the show? He knew he was running the show. You think when he raised his arms and parted the sea, while everyone was waiting, like sittering, as they say, in a near panic, you think he didn't know that he's the one who's holding up his arms, parting the sea? Of course he knew. And yet he's called the humblest person who ever lived. So how does that work? Because he understood his own holiness, but he also understood that he couldn't lift a finger without Hashem. And, you know, I love this teaching from the Kutzka Rebbe. He says that before you do a mitzvah, really, you're supposed to have in mind that you're doing a mitzvah. That's really, you, you should have kavana before you say a blessing should just be in the moment. You should understand that at that moment I'm doing a mitzvah. It's important. He said, except, there's one big exception. When you're being humble, you don't say, behold, I am preparing to do the mitzvah of being humble. <laughs> this would be the ultimate act of arrogance. <laughs> Excuse me. You're interrupting me being humble. I'm about to be humble. Okay, go. Go to the bathroom, come back. Then I'll be humble after you come back. I'll wait for you. Okay, now with that in mind, listen to this. Again, one of my favorite teachings in the world from the Gomorrah, from Rav Yosef. The, some of the sages were sitting around a table and they were bemoaning, grieving, legitimately grieving over the fact that Rebbe, the redactor of the Mishnah, which is the foundation stone of the whole Talmud, that Rebbe was in the next world, had left this world. And one of the sages said that when Rebbe left this world, humility left this world. And there was a silence. And then Rav Yosef said, I'm still here. And all the other sages went, oh yeah, yeah, thank God. Rav Yosef is still here. Now, if I made you guess how did that story end, I'll tell you what my guess would have been. They would have reached down to their shoe and thrown their shoe at him. What do you mean? You're announcing that you're humble and you're still here. And that's not how the story ends. They went, Oh, right, right, right. Rav Yosef is still here. Humility has not left the world yet. You know why? Because true humility is not about low self-esteem and it's not about denying the truth. If you're good at something, you can say or at least feel that you're good at something. But you have to know that you could be even better at it. And so you're humbled by the fact that you haven't truly achieved your potential in that way. And so that's a check and balance. You know that you're good. Ah, but I could be even better. And I want to be even better. And this good that I'm doing right now, which I know is good, I couldn't do it at all if it weren't for God. And that's the formula. We put all these things together.
So this second category of belief is when a person has everything and yet they know that they couldn't do anything without God. And they don't attribute it to their own power, they attribute it to God. And right now, we're living in a really interesting time in terms of just human civilization. For a good part of human civilization, it's all been, it's been about survival. And in fact, we just went through an episode about survival. This worldwide pandemic lockdown. Everyone was thinking, you know, if, if I get that, that, that could be the end. Like there's, like, like we hadn't experienced a modern day plague. And, and, and so this idea of survival is never too far behind. But as a day in and day out consciousness, survival isn't so much at the top of our minds anymore. And in fact, we have more wealth. And I'm talking about even a person who we would call, you know, uh, underprivileged at this point, has relatively speaking, historically speaking, more wealth than in all of human history today. I'll tell you a story. Um, there's a Ralph's. Ralph's is the name of um, our big supermarket chain here in Los Angeles. So I went into this Ralph's and there are these vast supermarkets. And I, I grew up on the Upper West Side in New York City. And one of the biggest kind of like, like differences between New York and L.A., I'll tell you, at least growing up in New York, is when you go to the supermarkets in New York, the aisles are so narrow. It's like, it's like if someone is coming with an oncoming <laughs> basket, like, good luck. You got to just kind of like squeeze next to each other. You know, like there'll be like sparks from the metal of the two, you know, shopping carts grinding against each other. If you can do it at all, if you can do that at all. They're like one lane highways. In Los Angeles, the supermarket aisles you can play golf. It's like a golf course. It's ridiculous. It's like, where does all this real estate come from? Like, you can, like, move in a desk, a bed. Like, is it okay if I rent aisle six just for a week? You know? So, anyway, I went into Ralph's. And I remember it was a Motsi Shabbos. It was Saturday night. And for whatever reason, I think I was the only customer in this vast supermarket. And I had this like, I had this like epiphany, which is I'm standing amidst all of this, all of this produce, all of these items. And I thought to myself, a king, an ancient king, did not have a pantry like this. No ancient king had a pantry as vast as this. And everything is available to me. And then I realized something that really blew my mind. There's nothing 
Not one item in this entire store that I can't afford. Because think about it. What's the most expensive thing in Ralph's? $100? I have $100. <laughs> and most things are $2.50. I can afford all of it. And whatever I want, I can put into my cart. By the way, my son just told me an interesting uh, fact. We depart from today's talk to learn an interesting fact about shopping carts. <laughs> Who is the shopping cart invented by? I don't know. <laughs> but here is the story. <laughs> he noticed that back in the day, everyone had baskets. And in fact, they still make these plastic baskets if you don't want to use a shopping cart. Now, this, this person was like a genius businessman, okay? What he noticed was when people's baskets got full, they stopped shopping. Isn't that interesting? So being a smart guy, he said, what if I create a much bigger basket? <laughs> then they'll buy even more things, right? Very interesting. What, what an observation about human nature. So he created these shopping carts and no one wanted to use them. Like they just didn't get it. It was just too strange and new. You know, adapting new behaviors is one of the challenges that business people face. When the internet first came on, like the Wall Street believed in it. This is why we had the um, internet Wall Street bubble burst because the business people got it right away. Who's gonna leave their house? Whatever you want, you can get right here. This is the greatest new revolution in consumerism ever. And then all the stocks crashed. Do you know why? Because it took people a while to get comfortable with the new way of doing it. So you always have to factor that in. You can't just have a better idea. You have to also figure out a way to get the people to adapt the better idea. And that, that's a separate, it's a separate chachma, separate category of wisdom. So now listen to what this man did. He hired people to walk up and down the aisles using their shopping carts and putting things in their shopping carts. And then when the other customers saw other people using it, they were like, ah, that's so much better than my basket. I got to get one of those things. Isn't that fascinating? Fascinating, right? You know, I remember the first time I ever went to the mikveh, was with, was with Reb Shlomo, he took me. I had come early for Shabbos davening and no one was in the shul and he poked his head in the shul, this was on 79th Street. They hadn't even turned on the lights in the shul. I was sitting in like quasi darkness by myself and he just kind of poked his head in the shul before he left to see if anyone was there, and he saw me. He said, 
you know, said hello. And I don't know if I asked him where he was going or if he just um, volunteered this. He, he told me, he says, he said, I'm going to the mikvah. He said, are you, are you into the mikvah or not so much? Right? And I said, no. I, I want to go, but I, I don't know how. Like, no one ever showed me. So he said, come with me. And, and I remember the walk there. I remember the walk to the mikvah together, and I remember what we talked about. I said to him, if God is outside time, if God is in time, but also outside time, that means God can see the future, which means that from God's point of view, he's already brought Mashiach. He can see the fact that he's already brought Mashiach. And Reb Shlomo nodded his head and he agreed and he said, yeah. He said, we're just making vessels for him right now. In other words, that reality is in the air, but we, we just have to make vessels for it in order to be able to hold it. So, so sometimes you just have to show someone how to do it. Someone was telling me the other day, I want to put on tefillin. I don't know how. There's so many people who want to do like the next step, but they just need a, a holding hand just to show them how. I remember one time I was, I was in such a funk. I really felt like my whole life was falling apart. And I was so dissatisfied and I didn't know why. And believe it or not, you know what? Do you know what the reason was? Because I wasn't learning Torah. And I just, and I realized I've got to make a schedule to learn Torah. And I did. And I instantly felt better. Sometimes we have this existential cloud over us of just like, nothing is right, nothing is right. But that's because we have this pent-up aspect of light within ourselves that's trying to get out. And sometimes it's one small thing that can make that opening and then the light pours out. We think sometimes if I've got a big problem, I need a big solution. But sometimes we can have a big problem and the solution is something very small. Sometimes we just have to make a vessel for a little bit more light, an opening within ourselves for a little bit more light to come out. And then we're flowing again, right? Because we're receiving light from above all of the time. And if it gets trapped inside of us, then it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. We need to flow. We need to flow. We need to be giving. We need to be reconnecting with that divine light, which is mitzvot, which is Torah, which is loving each other. Okay. So I want to continue with the discussion. And I told you we're getting deeper now because I want to talk about in a very practical way our lives today in America. And, and let me just say right out, I love America. 
okay? But we have to understand if we live here, and I think what I'm saying right now applies to other countries as well, Western, westernized countries, but I think it's especially true what I'm saying in America. You see, I heard Rabbi Beryl Wein say, German Jews are very exact. They have a reputation for being very exact. Why is that? Because Germans are very exact. Poles are another way. Polish Jewry is a little more casual. Why? Because Poles are very casual at least relative to Germans. What's the point? The point is, is that we are products of the society that we live in, in a very deep way. So we have to know what is the air that I am breathing? Because if you don't know what you are ingesting, then how are you going to counteract? As my father, Oliver Shalom, would often say, there cannot be change without insight. First, you need insight. You have to understand what the issue is. Then you can change. But if you don't have insight, there can be no change. So here's the question. What is America? What is this westernized air that we're breathing all of the time? How is it affecting us? Because it is affecting us. It is shaping us. So, if you ask me, I would tell you this. I would say that in terms of the day-ins and the day-outs of American life, right? America is about consumerism. And I don't think you have to think very long or hard about that to, to see the point. Our whole economy, our whole society is all about buying that next thing, having that even better thing. And, and now you see a tremendous irony. You ready for this? which is, as I mentioned before, we have more than we've ever had ever as individuals. And we've never been more dissatisfied. What is going on? Now, if I want to sell you a product, if I want to sell you a product, and I tell you that, you know, you're not still wearing last year's fashion, are you? <laughs> Please tell me you're not wearing last year's fashion. Please tell me that. Why am I telling you that? It still fits you. You look perfectly good in it. You loved it when you bought it. <laughs> oh, but last year's or two years ago? Really? Really? So, Every billboard, every advertisement is designed to make us feel bad about what we have. 
and about who we are. Because you need to buy the next thing. So do you see this incredible tension between having everything and yet the air that we're breathing is telling us all the time that whatever we have isn't good enough? Do you see how crippling that is? And now let me tell you something even deeper and more insidious. When all the advertisements can get us to look down on each other. Now I don't have to just have a twing of self-consciousness when I go by the billboard with the new style. Now I have to have that twing of self-consciousness when I walk in front of you. Because you've so assimilated that consciousness into the way you look at me. What a nightmare. What a nightmare. What a nightmare. That's when Greek wins. That's, that's the victory of Greece. That's the triumph of the outside over the inside. And if you don't think that that is a description of the society that we're living in, open your eyes. Because it is. I'm telling you it is. But you don't have to be victim to it. So in this world that's trying to make you dissatisfied all the time, so the solution is gratitude. The solution is gratitude. And you start with small things, like the fact that you have whatever. You have a, you're wearing a shirt. Do you, do you know how much colder you'd be right now if you didn't have a shirt? I know some people who, for fashion reasons or just general hair loss reasons, that they've shaved their head and they've discovered something very amazing. Your head gets cold if there's no hair on it. <laughs> Which most people never have to encounter that. But your head gets Can you imagine? My head is cold. <laughs> I have to wear a hat. Not because I want to look good. Because my head is cold. So there are things that are small things that we absolutely take for granted all the time. Because here's the thing. Let me give you an example. I think most of us are guilty of this. Have you ever borrowed a book from someone, to use one example, and that book has sat in your house for months and months, and at a certain point you decide that it's actually your book because you've had it for so long, <laughs> that it no longer belongs to the person that you borrowed it from, just because by virtue of the fact that you've been in possession of it for so long. I know that that's true for a lot of people. So let me give you another example. When I first started going to Minion in the morning, Daily Minion, uh, I was so happy. It was a small Minion. And every time they read the Torah, I'm a Levi, so I'd get the Levi Aliyah. And I was really, you know, made me happy. And then one day I was there and I realized I'm the only Levi. Of course I get the Levi Aliyah. And that day, 
another Levi showed up and he got the Aliyah. <laughs> and I realized, just because you get something every single day, it doesn't make it any less of a gift. Because nothing has to be the way it is. Just because you have something doesn't mean that it's any less of a gift. We tend to think that because we have something for a period of time, like that book on our shelf, that it belongs to us, that it's ours, that it's mine. But I always love to quote Rabbi Green, you know, who said like, your lungs belong to you? Where's the receipt? Show me the receipt. <laughs> They're your lungs. Let me see the receipt. In other words, all of these things that we have, they're gifts and they remain gifts. They don't stop being gifts. And if we can refine and elevate our consciousness to the point where we're thanking God and finding things to thank God for, let me explain what I mean by that. There's something that I like to call the physics of spirituality. There's a certain physics to spirituality. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. You see, in America, to use America as an example, dissatisfaction, because our entire economy is built on consumerism, and you have to, they have to create a need in you for you to purchase something else, which means you have to be dissatisfied with what you have to want to buy something else. This energy of dissatisfaction is coming at us at all times. Now, Newton says, for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. So, the dissatisfaction comes to us and we react with that dissatisfaction. We internalize it. If you want to combat it, you combat it with thanks. But here's the thing. If you want to push it away, you have to actively thank. In other words, if you just hear this idea I promise you, you will leave this talk with nothing, with nothing. You have to actively find things to be grateful for. That is the force that pushes away the dissatisfaction that's coming at us that we can't see with our eyes. And the only way you're going to be successful at it is if you actively find things to thank God for. And you can be very creative and very funny about it. Like, I am so glad right now, God, that there, that my leg is not between the jaws of a crocodile. <laughs> it could, they could be. They absolutely could be. There are people who walk along the river's edge in Miami and crocodiles or alligators jump out at them. 
That's a real thing. I've read stories about that. You know, in Florida, they have these giant pythons, <laughs> which will come into your house. Giant pythons. I am so glad right now that I can deliver, can I, I can deliver this talk without wrestling a giant python. But when you realize that any reality can form in front of you, which is true, you can be creative and even humorous in finding things to thank God for. And then you can actively, that is the way to actively combat the dissatisfaction that's coming your way. And of course, you can be more grounded and you should begin with the more grounded to thank God for your shoes, for your socks, right? If you're wearing glasses, thank God, you know? Well, why, why, why do I have any right to see clearly? These glasses are so fantastic. Or, or eye contacts, oh my goodness. I get to wear glasses and not have this thing on my face. It's amazing, amazing. Um, but let me go deeper a second. You see, God is hidden in this world. God is the most hidden he can be in this world, where if you look for him, you can still find him. Now, there's certain divine names of Hashem that correlate with the different levels of reality. In terms of this material reality that we live in, also known as, known as Olam Asiyah, the divine name that correlates with this dimension of reality that we're in right now is Adonai, but spelled Aleph, Dalid, Nun, Yud. So we'll refer to that name as Adnus. Okay, so that's the divine name of Hashem that's associated with this realm of reality where God is very hidden. Adnus, that divine name. Now I noticed something over Shabbos that blew my mind. You ready for this? The gematria of that divine name is 65. Do you know what else is the gematria 65? Halel. Halel means to give thanks. If you want to uncover the hiddenness of God in this realm, you know how you do it? Halel, by giving thanks. That's what counteracts the hiddenness. That's what counteracts the dissatisfaction. Giving praise to God, thanking God. That's how you do it. And that's the awesome light of Hanukkah. Right? Hanukkah well, Hanukkah is about light, but let me put it to you this way, okay? God commands us to make a menorah in the base of Migdash and to light it. So here's my question to you. And by the way, it's not my question. The Medrash asks this question. Do you think God can't see in the dark? <laughs> Do you think God needs a lamp? Why does God... Make a menorah in the base of Mikdash, in the Holy Temple. And then God's like, oh, I don't want to bump into the Mizbeach. Oh, I always hit myself on the 
northwest corner of the altar. <laughs> Can you put some lights on, for goodness sakes? God doesn't need the menorah. So why does he tell us to make one? So we need the menorah. We need the light. We need the light. But let me tell you why we need the light. You see, one of my campaigns in life is to get this message across, what I'm about to tell you. Most people think that the foundation of this world is darkness. And then God said, Vayahi or, let there be light. In other words, where does reality start from? Dark, darkness. Obviously darkness, because the first thing God says is let there be light. Okay, but let's go deeper. Before the world, there was God. In fact, before the world, and to this day, the only thing that exists is God. Now, one of the names of God is Or Ein Sof, which means light without end. So what's the beginning of the world? Darkness? Yes, again. <laughs> the beginning of this world is endless light. Or Ein Sof, light without end. That's the foundation of this world. And that's why we have to light the menorah every day to remind ourselves that the foundation of this world is light. Now, let me tell you why that's so important. I mean, for a million reasons, but let me just give you one more reason. Because if I think the world the foundation of the world is darkness, then how am I supposed to believe that the real light, the true light, the great light is ever going to come? But if I know that the world, the foundation of the world is light, then I also know that the light can come back at any moment because it's already there <laughs> and it never went away. And it's coming back. You know, the Bineus Oscar says, the greatest Hanukkah Torah. And if somehow you live to this moment without hearing it, okay, well, we're going to fix that. God will. You know the letters on the dreidel, right? Nes Gadol Hayah Sham. That's what it stands for. A great miracle happened there. Nun, Gemo, He, Shin. Those four letters. If you add them up, do you know what that's the gematria of? Mashiach. Gematria, the first letter is Mashiach. Isn't that amazing? By the way, that's 358, if you want to know. 358. Amazing, 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 amazing. In other words, the light of Hanukkah is the light of Mashiach. It's the light that tells us the light is always there. Can we go even deeper? What do I mean that the light is always there? 
that original light. You know what we call it? The Or Haganus. That's the special name in Torah for this special light. That original light that God hid away. And where did God hide that light? So in the beginning of the Torah, after right after it says, Vayahi or let there be light, God refers to that light and he says that it's good. It says God saw that light and it was good. Es ha'or, the light. God saw the light that it was good. Es ha'or means the light. Do you know what the gematria of Es ha'or is? 613. Where did God hide the light? 613. He hid it in the mitzvot. He hid it in the Torah. Every time you open up a Torah book, if you had the eyes to see the wavelength it was shining on, light is spilling out of the books. Every time you do something beautiful, light is spilling out of it. Okay, we'll stop there. What follows now are some questions and answers. So there's this, there's an energy shift in this month that we're, that we're in right now because we've got one of the fast days of the year coming up, the 10th, and it's the surrounding of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem that we're fasting for. We're, we're fasting for a few different things. Very interestingly, one of the things that we fast for coming up in another, I guess, nine days is that the Torah was ever translated out of Hebrew. That the Torah was translated into Greek. And from Greek, that's, it's called the Septuagint. If you ever see that word written in a book, that means the Torah translation into Greek. And they, the sages compare it to a lion being put into a cage because now every Hebrew word is functioning on so many different levels in terms of meaning. And once it gets translated, there's this alien theology that gets locked onto the Torah. And that's the lion in a cage. And now you've got a much more limited understanding of what the Torah is saying. And not only that, but your capacity to misunderstand what the Torah is saying grows exponentially. I mean, you've got one of the biggest religions in the entire world today, over a billion people. I won't name any names, which is all based on mistranslations. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? So to this day, we mourn and fast over the fact that the Torah was translated. And I can't tell you how many people I know who are alienated from Torah because they heard a crummy explanation based on a bad translation. So the domino effects are still with us. Now, one of the things that I believe very strongly, and I was teaching this a lot coming into this year, was this shift in energy, as, as, as you referred to it, 
um, going from Hanukkah into this month that we're in right now, which is really, you know, the heart of the darkness. And it reminds me of a shift of energy that comes that we have two Bishvat, then we have Purim, then we have Pesach, then we have Lagba Omer, then we have Shvuas, we're getting the Torah at Mount Sinai, and then all of a sudden comes Tammuz and the three weeks. And it's like, where did God go? It's like God took a sharp left turn and got out of here, which of course is not the case. It's ridiculous. But what is really happening? God is coming even closer. He's not getting further away. He's coming closer. But can I tell you something? When the king comes into your home, it's good for your home to be clean. In other words, when God is coming even closer, paradoxically, that's also a time of judgment. It's a time of increased love because he's coming closer. But now he's got, so to speak, humanly speaking, a better look. So, you know, you want to make it even nicer. Now we're coming up to the eighth day of Hanukkah tonight. The eighth day of Hanukkah is basically the pinnacle of where Yom Kippur is leading to. And now you said that a little anger starts to manifest. And I think where that anger is coming from, this is just me talking, is that our soul looks at the world after the eighth day of Hanukkah. Remember, eight means like beyond this world. We're shining this light into this world from beyond this world. And then we go, you mean the world still isn't fixed yet? And there's part of us that gets mad. And we react with anger. You mean you still haven't gotten your act together yet? How many times have I told you? You still haven't fixed it yet. But we can't fall into that trap. You can't fall into that trap. Because that's basically, that's the Yetzirah, that's the Satan, who's trying to take your idealism and make you apply your idealism in an unholy way. It wants to take your dreams about a beautiful fixed world and to use it to start pumping anger into the world because it's taking too long for you. And don't fall into that trap. Don't fall into that trap. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.